Welcome back, friends, to the Mark Claire Show. It's another Monday. It means it's time for another great conversation with your boy, Mark Claire. And today, uh, it's a little bit of a refresh for me because as many of you know, most of you know, I used to do a political podcast, a purely political podcast called Lions of Liberty. Uh, and I moved away from that after about almost a decade of doing politics because I just couldn't take it anymore. But now when I do foray into the world of politics as I really only have once or twice before on this particular program, now it's actually refreshing when I do so. And when I decided to do a conversation about the 2024 election, there was only one person that came to my mind, and that was today's guest, Tho Bishop. Before we get to him, I want to remind you about our fantastic, and I do mean fantastic sponsors, Stephen Fox and his company, Fox and Sons, and the fantastic, I said fantastic again, because that is the best word to describe this gentleman and his fine coffee. Boom. Right here in this cup for those of you watching on the video, on Rumble, on Odyssey, on BitChute, on YouTube, wherever you can find it. I'm happy to have you here. I want you to head over and find out what's in this cup of mine. This is the Den Blend Dark, but there's all sorts of beans, beans for everybody. There's actually some new beans on the way that I'm going to tell you about in just a second, as soon as I pull it up here on my phone. But in the meantime, I want you to head over to foxandsons.com, F-O-X-N-S-O-N-S.com. Choose bean and get yourself a discount. That discount is going to be a whopping 18 percent off. I got you the highest possible discount for the Mark Claire Show listeners. All you got to do is use discount code MCS. You can get the Den Blend Dark, as I prefer to do, but there's some new roasts over there. We got the Guatemalan, the Ethiopian, and coming soon, the Colombian and the Mexican Honey Prep. I was skeptical of the Honey Preps, but I did try the Brazil Honey Prep because I'm not really a sweet guy in, in, when it comes to coffee. I like my coffee, uh, I don't know, very acetic, you might say. I don't know the right terms for this stuff. Uh, but I tried it, and it's it's not what you imagine when you picture honey. It's not that kind of sweetness. It just adds the right little tanginess to it. I'm still more a fan of the Den Blend Dark because I'm a dark, gross guy overall. But I was very impressed with the Honey Prep, and I, I have that in my rotation now as well. Uh, so you, you want to check them all out. I recommend getting a couple different bags. Head over to foxandsons.com, use discount code MCS for 18% off your order. That being said, it is now time for my conversation about the 2024 election with Tho Bishop. My guest today is the content manager over at the Mises Institute. He is a fellow Florida man, one of the Florida men responsible, partially, I would say, for me even being in Florida right now. And when I hear the word politics, which we're going to talk about today, one of the first names that come to my mind is my guest today from the Mises Institute, Though Bishop. Though, welcome to my show. Uh, always glad to be here, Mark. All right, though. Well, it's your first time formerly on the Mark Claire show, even though we've spoken a few times back in the old Lions Liberty Day. So since it's a new show, why don't we start with your origin story again? Because you do have a pretty interesting origin story about how you first ventured into the world of politics and economics and whatnot. Yeah, well, unfortunately, I was kind of born into it to a certain extent. My, uh, my father was a, uh, was a Republican op um, and uh, for, for various generations. Uh, he was actually RNC uh, communications director during Watergate, which created all sorts of very interesting stories that I always enjoy hearing. And so I was always kind of attracted to the dark arts of politics. And then um, during the financial crisis, I realized I had nothing to say about economics, and that really bothered me because I like going on AOL chat rooms and you know arguing with people much older than myself. And uh, so eventually, you know, I was always kind of interested, already interested in the sort of libertarian thing. I was kind of reading some Ayn Rand, and I thought that Ron Paul guy was cool. And um, discovered Mises.org. Um, that was actually my father that sent me a link, which looking back was was a little out there for him. Um, but uh, 
started you know started reading Austrian economics. I'd already been reading um, some Krugman. I'd been reading some uh, Milton Friedman, but these Austrians seemed to really uh, really click with me. And so you know, a lot of my economic upbringing, you know, I was consuming Mises.org content. Uh, I was doing oil spill cleanup. I was working in a coffee shop, various jobs like that. And uh, then I got the opportunity to work up in D.C. for a congressman named Spencer Backus, who became uh, head of the Financial Services Committee after the Tea Party Revolution in 2010. So I got to be kind of an Austrian mole on that. And, you know, we went to, you know, would would debate my colleagues, you know, having drinks next door after work about the gold standard and these crazy libertarian things. And uh, from that, I was eventually able to get an opportunity to work for the Mises Institute itself, which is, uh, has been a tremendous honor. And I've been here for you know, eight or so years now, which is time's just flying by. can't believe that's a thing. And uh, we just had our Mises University program, which is always the best week of the year. So it's always, it, I haven't been up to Auburn so much this year. Uh, got, a, got a new little one here. So uh, you know, creating more, more Florida, Florida people. Uh, with my wife, yes. and so uh, we are. Uh, we're doing great. Whatever, however many we can't bring here, we'll just exactly, create. Right? Exactly, and, and best of all, she she doesn't have to worry about a house. So, like the, the affordability issue, <laughs> she doesn't worry about that for a while. So, uh, so yeah, so it's that's where I've been, and uh, you know, particularly after 2016, I got interested in politics again after kind of being very disillusioned, and so I've been having fun within this this crazy populist era with with Trump and all that, and and obviously DeSantis, and trying to navigate. Uh, the anatomy of the state that we're living in right now and trying to red pill as many boomer cons as I can get. Well, yeah, it's an interesting path because I, I'm kind of curious just before we get into some of the specifics of what's going on right now with the 2024 election, which is really what I want to get into with you. And it's interesting because, you know, back when I did Lions of Liberty, uh, Sometimes I would get so sick of talking about politics that I would be I would be thirsting for some other topic to talk about. But now that I do this show and I don't really get into politics that much, now it's kind of flipped around where talking about politics occasionally is actually the thing that's really refreshing. So I'm kind of excited to dig into this stuff with you. Um, let's just start with uh, your overall view on politics because I think, as you know, there was a little bit of a schism, you might say, in the libertarian movement uh, 2020 and beyond. And I think there were a lot of libertarians that sort of broke out of what they they themselves might refer to as their Lulbert phase, where it was just all about theory, all about being right, very little, if any, any attempts to practically apply it to the real world. I'm curious, how much of that phase did you ever go through, especially coming up in a family where your father was, like you said, sort of an op, so you did really see the, the darker underside of politics, not just as this sort of theoretical utopian thing. So I'm kind of curious how your how your own you know evolution sort of went along on that path. Did you did you ever go through a little bit of a Lul, a Lulbert phase, a pure theory phase, or have you always kind of had that that foot in the door of the the sort of machinations that have to go on in politics as well? I think the closest thing I came from a real Lulbert phase was being convinced that Rand Paul could be the Republican nominee in 2016 and kind of waving that flag for a while until it became very clear that uh, that, that, that wasn't happening and this Trump thing was something I need to, to try to reckon with one way or another. Um, but I, I will say, you know, there, there was a time there uh, before the Mises caucus where kind of looking, you know, going into the 2016 election, I thought, as I think most people did, that Donald Trump, you know, wasn't going to win the general election for, for a variety of reasons. And I was convinced that the response to that would have been sort of Republican purge of MAGA, which everyone was just kind of, you, you had all these people in D.C. just kind of waiting their times, like, oh, just don't worry, Trump's going to fail. And then all of a sudden, we can kind of take back our party and we'll cast out, you know, all these crazy people, all these, you know, the, 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 your, your average Washington Republican viewed the Trump base 
the same way that Hillary Clinton did, right? You know, these these were deplorables, these were yokels, these were the un, uneducated, these were embarrassments, basically, to to the way, the proper way they see themselves. And I thought there that could create a very interesting opportunity for a third party. Um, they had this grand. He's like, oh well, you know, imagine if he got you know like a like a, a Tom Woods to 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 you know be the the banner carrier for the LP who has you know this background with you know speaking to Tea Party groups and speaking to Catholic groups and you know speaking speaking to people that are serious about states' rights and maybe that's something there that could be be um, created with this this populist black backlash that captured the GOP in 2016 and of course and then Trump won so all those plans kind of went out the window. And so, so outside of that, I've never been a, a capital L libertarian. I've always been very skeptical of the value of third parties, and that skepticism has only grown over time. Um, you know, particularly when you know when, when when you see some of the rhetoric out there. Obviously, not the majority of the Republican Party, um, particularly at the national level. The national level is still largely a bunch of you know clown show, you know, mediocre individuals that uh, you know there's concern about you know bringing home the bacon to whatever special interest group to help get them elected in the congressional seat. Um, but you know, now that you see people like Matt Gates who are as comfortable talking about MK Ultra as they are dealing with constituent services within the right, um, you know, that that to me just kind of has, has been a reinforcement of what I've seen in my own day-to-day life dealing with, you know, a lot of kind of Republicans, um, you know, my neighbors, right? You know, people outside of Twitter seeing how awakened they've become to, you know, the rot of the entire institution and, and being convinced that that's, that's an instrument there. Um, worth pursuing, and I think the way that we've seen the the LP right now, I mean, I have, I have no idea what the state of their, you know, their their very important presidential primary is right now, or any any sort of the some of the the goals that I know some very good, well intentioned people did. You're gonna have a lot of respect um, for the intentions and the, the knowledge that a lot of people that became very active in the LP in the last few years um, have. Um, but I, I think I, I haven't seen anything to to change my mind that uh, the opportunity right now is to try to create a broad coalition against the regime as it extends rather than um you know any of this sort of third partyism or or even even really these these ideological movements as a political vehicle um you know i think ideal i think i think ideologues should be trying to capture political energy rather than trying to create some sort of ideologically pure liberty movement or anything like that that's an interesting way you put it too as sort of a, a coalition against the regime there seems to be uh in some ways anyway at least in maybe the alternative uh the alternative media and the alternative sort of political conversations there seems to be uh a new divide where it, it used to be sort of left versus right democrat republican but now there is a lot more of you see people that would have been on totally opposite sides before sort of agreeing with each other and coming together in certain ways due to just a general opposition to what you, what you might call the regime or the way things are and you know this is a phrase that that we hear a lot that we hear a lot of people reference the regime and I wonder how how much people that aren't immersed in sort of our sector of the world what they think when they hear that. So maybe you can start there and define what do you what do you mean anyway? Um, maybe you can't define what everybody else means. What do you mean when you say the regime uh, in sort of the way you're referring it, to it? Well, it's kind of the, the the true ruling apparatus of this country, and I think it's important to distinguish that from you know sort of the the common perceptions of you know democracy is us the people and all this sort of of BS. Right, you know, it is a, a, a collective, corruptive group of you know whether, whether it's the non-elected bureaucrats, whether it is the elected class that become subservient to the unelected class. Um, so I, I don't want to say that everyone who is in D.C. is necessarily part of the regime. You do have outsiders there. Again, you know, I mentioned Matt Gates earlier. You know, he's someone who 
has, you know, who, who weathered a very personal, very directed, very calculated smear campaign where you had, um, you know, DOJ people leaking to media very scandalous and salacious details about an investigation that eventually they could not act on because, you know, the entire sort of kernel of that was this unreliable, uh, crazy guy. Um, but but it wasn't. But it didn't stop them from kind of loosing, leaking these juicy details in the media to kind of smear him and and try to 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 make him an outsider within his Republican caucus within D.C. So so someone like Matt Gates, I don't don't consider part of the regime. It's the the elected officials that serve as giving the perception of legitimacy to whatever the agenda is of the true ruling class. And this can be both again the the professional political class, the people that never leave D.C. Uh, no matter um, the outcome of political elections. It's interesting. There's a very interesting um, article in uh, Tablet about, you know, the, the role that Obama has as kind of a shadow presidency, how he never left D.C. You know, the, the excuse was, oh, well, you know, his daughters were graduating high school where they're no longer in high school, yet they're still there. So Obama, more so than I think other presidents, right? I, I don't think Bush... I think I don't think George W. Bush, for example, is a member of regime now, right? He's painting and you know living a quiet life in, in Texas, and it's right. better that way. Obama still is part of that regime, right? So it's it's that prof it's it's the professional political class, and increasingly the extension to which, um, you know, this this very corporatized, this very cartelized, uh, you know, corporate atmosphere of all of these industries that are reliant upon privileges that the regime gives them some of those can be more direct as you know for example the working relationship that big tech had with intelligence agencies and the fbi and the like for censoring information some of it can be uh, more indirect such as you know businesses that benefit from you know policies from the fed or different uh, uh subsidies and things like that on the margins regulatory capture and the like so it's it's not so so the way that i th i think about the regime it's a ruling class that the people of the country have no real say over outside of whatever gains can be made through the electoral process and recognizing that their interests are not our interests. They are not even pretending to care about our interests. And I think when you see the rise of, you know, the, the, the experience with COVID tyranny, I think when you see the concerns that are now becoming increasingly mainstream about the Great Reset, central bank digital currencies, when you see concerns about the weaponization of the DOJ and the FBI, when you see increasingly normal Americans who might have in the past been content to kind of listen to whatever Fox News tells them, it's like, oh, well, I don't like this, this, and this that Democrats are doing because Democrats are crazy. Rather, you know, rather than just kind of casting punches at the other party, recognizing, recognizing that the game itself is rigged against us, that, um, you know, team color, tie color doesn't matter, that it's your connection to that DC swamp that matters. Um, I, I think, again, I'm not going to suggest that the majority of the American people are on this path, but I think that a growing number of Americans are on this path, and I think you can see it best reflected, um, both within the fact that within the Republican Party field, while Trump is you know, the, the overrunning front runner, what's, I think, encouraging is that if you look down ballot or down, you know, down the polls, you know, it's candidates like Vivit Ramaswamy and although performing worse than he was originally Ron DeSantis, if you couple that in with Trump, and I think those three people, you know, do not represent some sort of Romney reset, right? You know, these are not trying to restore the Republican Party to what it used to be. They make up like 75, 80% of the Republican primary, showing that the base on the right is not interested in going back to the politics of old. You can also look at, obviously, RFK Jr. 
and the energy that his campaign has. Again, I'm not predicting you know any sort of major threat to Biden within the Democratic primary, but when you have him on Joe Rogan, when you have average people saying, yeah, big pharma has captured these regulatory agencies and I'm concerned about what that means for my family or I'm concerned about the incentives of you know everything ranging from the intelligence agencies to you know food production that underlying skepticism of these big powers i think is a reflection of growing awareness of the real nature again that, that real anatomy of the state as, as Murray Rothbard wrote about and that i think is a necessary prerequisite for any sort of real political change reform whatever word you prefer um, you know, that, that, and I think this is one of the more, for all the absurdity, all the stupidity that elections create, and we're going to get a lot of that, we're already getting a lot of that, that more fundamental dynamic in the way that normal people see what the state really is, I think that's the far more important uh, dynamic at hand right now. So maybe the libertarians didn't get everyone to actually read Anatomy of the State, but maybe the way things have played out in the last eight years or so, uh, maybe more Americans have that general sense of what the state really is and have a general sense that the system is the problem, not necessarily because they voted for, you know, for the wrong person last week. Well, I think a great example of that, and you're, one of, one of the, the, the little nuggets I, um, have, that's kind of sat with me was an observation that uh, Richard Hania made a few months ago where he was explaining why he thought DeSantis had no chance in the primary, in my opinion, then was a little bit different than it is now. And his underlying argument was basically, you know, kind of recognizing the unique role that Trump plays with the people that like him. And that's the reason why they like Trump. While they might say it's because he's not a politician or they might say because they want to drain the swamp or it might say because they want to own the libs or whatever it is, Ultimately, his real role is being Johnny Carson. He makes people laugh. He makes people, you know, kind of escape whatever the hardships are that they are experiencing, and you know, in large part because of the policies of the regime. What really draws people to Trump is his sense of humor, his charisma, the showmanship. And so when you see the way that Donald Trump is being treated by the Biden administration. When you see the FBI, um, you know, creating these crazy trumped up charges, when Americans see that, or particularly when Trump fans see that, I think that has a more visceral way of illustrating all the things that we've talked about, right? Pro a, a, a prosecutorial misconduct, the way that the FBI can find any, can invent a crime if they really want to get you. All of these issues with the justice system that libertarians can articulate and are very educated in and can write books on. Seeing it actually play out to the number one celebrity of red state America hits differently. It, it, it makes them understand that differently. And so they also absorb that sort of message that Trump uses, which is largely self-serving, but it is illustrative that, you know, they, they're going after him because they, going after Trump because they hate us. And I think that that emotional connection there, that, that, you know, that visceral experience that, again, a lot of people who grew up, you know, having, you know, schoolhouse rock style sort of views on the way that government works, right? You know, they, they can convince that, oh, well, the Constitution and voting saves us. Um, they don't have that naive view of things anymore. And I, there's, you know, we, we can talk about education and we can talk about theory all, all we want. It's until you experience it or until you see the experience of someone that you care about.
go through that. Nothing nothing drives that point harder, harder than that. And I think that's that that is a, a very important dynamic for those of us who have had pre-existing concerns, pre-existing awareness. That's what's creating a very opportunistic moment for us. So Trump has kind of ascended beyond the level of any kind of ordinary political candidate or presidential candidate uh, to at least too many people, to at least a large portion of his base. He really just represents a target against them. He represents the 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 bulwark. Whether he is or not is is almost maybe irrelevant because he is now just sort of a symbol, and he is not. And as a symbol, it's not a symbol that can be replaced. It's not like you can just swap in some other person there because that person is not Donald Trump, and then Donald Trump is certainly unique in his time. My, my question about Trump is, you know, if, if to me the storyline anyway, or at least what has has seemed to be, you know, what played out in 2016 is that Trump was boosted up by CNN uh, and the Hillary Clinton campaign as the Pied Piper candidate. That's what came out in a lot of the, the leaked DNC documents and the WikiLeaks leak stuff. Um, and it seems that they overestimated him, boosted him up, and just didn't realize that that you know how how strong his campaign was, and you know how much maybe unspoken support there was for him. Uh, so if if that can be written off as a, a big miscarriage calculation in 2016. My question is, what the hell are they doing now? Because once again, it seems that they have made, uh, if it was a mistake eight years ago, how can it be a mistake now? Because not they still seem to be in every conversation, every mainstream interview with a Republican presidential candidate, the entire conversation becomes about Trump. Um, of course, the indictments, uh, the coverage, it is all making the focus just on Donald Trump. So I'm just curious for what you think the end game is is here. What is the reason to make this all about Trump? Is it truly just to tear him down and put an end to this thing, or is there is there something something that I'm missing here? Well, I, I definitely understand the cynical analysis, and typically when we think about what the the state does, we should be cynical in it. That you know, this this is a repeat of that 2016 strategy, the Pied Piper sort of dynamic on trying to get the Republican Party to bite on a candidate that is, again, one of the most unpopular figures within the American discourse right now, which is still true to this day, um, and try to, to prevent, you know, say someone like Ron DeSantis, who tends to pull better with independents and, and kind of swing voters and the like. Um, and I'm, I'm sure that there are definitely an element of kind of Democratic consultant class that is just, you know, rubbing their hands. Because while it did not work in 2016, um, you look at the results of 2022, and I, I think there's a variety of dynamics that led to the red wave that didn't happen. I think that you know the you know there, there's there's plenty of blame across the board for why that fizzled out. But one of the deliberate strategies the Democrats had that w appeared to be successful was trying to elevate the most MAGA e of candidates in primaries, and that successfully sort of drove away independents and helped you know. Over, you know, Democrats overperform, maintain the Senate, win some some other races down ballot, and like, um, and so I, I think that I don't I, I don't think that that dynamic is necessarily incorrect, but I don't think that is really the underlying catalyst here. I think the underlying catalyst is that Trump made the indefensible uh, decision in the eyes of the regime to engage in the most powerful campaign against any standing political order and that was calling out its legitimacy right the way that he left office again regardless of all the things that he failed to do his first term 
no matter all of the, the compromises made with various bad actors that he campaigned against. Um, the way that he left office and saying the entire system is rigged, you know, talking about you know, the, the election integrity, um, some claims there, not true, right? You know, I, I think that you know, the Kraken was never a thing. You know, Sidney Powell was wrong. But without question, anyone that's following the way that election went, this is not the way that you conduct elections in a serious country, right? Changing rules outside of order, um, you know, lack of security in terms of the, the handling of ballots, uh, blanket censorship of accurate information, um, you know, and, and then a propaganda campaign from, you know, various uh, intelligence officers backing up the justification for that censorship and the like. This is not the way that, I mean, for all the complaints that we might have about democracy, all the complaints we might have the state, that's not what a competent state does, right? This is not the way, you know, this is, this is a South American-style election. It's not an American, um, it's something that, that's completely anathema to the way that America has conducted elections outside of 1876. And calling that out and having people believe that, and I, I think a large percentage of the base would have believed that no matter what Trump said, um, but you know, you had two thirds of the Trump electorate saying that the elections were rigged. That comes to 55 million people. Have 55 million people not believing in the legitimacy of the federal government becomes a real governing issue. And I think ultimately that is the crime that they cannot forgive. And you know, I, I think that what you have right now is a dangerous regime, but it's a dangerous regime because it's a weak regime. It's a, it's so, so you see, rather than trying to bring people back in the fold, rather than trying to lower tensions, rather than stop trying to poke culture war buttons and the like, the Democrats have doubled down on all of this. I think part of it is because so many of the actual staffers within the administration are to the far left of where they were during the Obama years. I think there's a variety of reasons for that. And so they genuinely believe it, right? These are true believers. These are, are religious jihadis for progressivism or you know, whatever term you want to use for it. So, so, they have, so they're, they're fundamentalists di dictating policies so they, they, won't, they refuse to compromise from their own worldview and then they will just do everything they can to destroy Trump because the impact that Trump has had on the sanctity of that ruling class, the sanctity, the legitimacy of the regime. And so you, know, you, you, can, you can have emotional decisions, have strategic, cynical benefits there. Um, but I, I think that's ultimately the dynamic by which I see, in particular, the most recent indictment where you know, again, they're indicting Trump for, you know, with, with, with laws that were brought about in 1871 to punish the Ku Klux Klan, right? Like that, that's a New York Times erotica right there. It doesn't get any better <laughs> for a New York Times reader than like, ah, oh, Donald Trump being prosecuted because of, because of the way with Klan legislation, right? I mean, you can't create a narrative better than this. Honey, and they, they, grab they the wine, it. dim the lights. Yeah. There's an article about Trump in the Times. Yeah, they, 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 they need that for their own, you know, their, their, their own mental well-being. Bad, bad guys must be punished. And so I, I think that you're having emotional decisions that, again, they could end up, working. I mean, you know, there's an argument made that the only way that, that Biden, should he be the nominee, which I think is an additional question, the only way Biden can win is by going up against someone as unpopular as Donald Trump. But I think the underlying motivation here is the attack Donald Trump had against the legitimacy of their, their, their claim to rule. So, so maybe perhaps it was Pied Piper eight years ago was, ha ha ha, this joker, he's not going to really go anywhere. If we just boost him up, we're all good. But now perhaps it truly is vengeance and it truly is. This kind of reminds me of a conversation I had back on Lions Liberty with uh, academic agent Nima on his book, Popular Delusion. And he, I'm summing up his words, but essentially when a regime is threatened, truly, there's really only a couple 
ways it can act. And it can choose to sort of act in the persuasive way, the propagandist way, and just try to win back the people that were going against the regime. Or it goes the opposite direction and just lashes out and just sort of, you know, just just uses blunt force, which seems to be a lot more of, of what it's doing with Trump and whatever section of the, the population that is, uh, I guess you might say, skeptical of the legitimacy of, of the regime at this point. Um, all right, we'll, we'll hop over to the Democrat side in a minute because there's, there's a lot to talk about there as well. But I'm just curious how you see this playing out because there's really only two scenarios I can see, well, at least when it comes to the Republican primary. It's either Trump gets indicted or physically goes to jail in some legal way that removes him from this conversation, removes him from the election, or he wins it I, I, in terms of the primary. I can't see any other scenario. Is there a third one I'm missing here, or how do you see this all playing out? No, I, I don't see a path for anyone else. Um, again, DeSantis's campaign has been an, an outright disaster. Um, part of that is because of just the force of Trump. And I think particularly once the indictment started coming in, you saw a massive boost. You, know, you saw that kind of rallying around the icon dynamic there. But his campaign has also been bad. Um, you know, he's, he's danced around. You know, his mistake, in my opinion, is that, you know, I, I thought DeSantis had the opportunity as a national candidate to kind of be a cesarean sort of figure where he could, you know, kind of be a, be a rival for the love of the people, love of the base, um, because of the the real gains that he had, I thought he had a unique opportunity to win over people that love Trump because of the scalps on the wall that he had, and then be this be someone that the money class, you know, the the the, the elites would that, that that don't like Biden would rally behind out of the necessity of opposing Trump. And the problem is, is that he directed his campaign early on to try to do everything he can to collect as much money up front. And I think that's that, that's a, that's not the way politics goes right now, right? You can have a hundred million dollars in the bank. How do you spend it to get the word out there? People tune out pay, uh, campaign commercials. People you know, like I, I don't think your average typical sort of big media blast in the past, you know, the the, the typical way of you know, the Frank Luntz way of of dealing with election campaigns works anymore. You know, you you need to be out there. You know, you, you need basically be creating content that people organically consume. And so while you know, RFK Jr. was out there going on Joe Rogan or you have, you have uh, Vish Ramaswamy that never turns down a podcast or you have Trump with you know, his, his bully pulpit on, on truth, DeSantis, you know, his campaign was all about kind of limiting media exposure. He, wasn't do, you know, he, he was only going on kind of very select, very friendly environments and the like. And you know, people saw that as disingenuine. Um, his dancing around the Ukraine-Russia issue, I think, made, made a, a huge, huge mistake, I think, in alienating Tucker Carlson, who should have been a, a, a friendly advocate, um, someone who, who was very favorable of DeSantis up until that sort of moderating of the message. And so I think by trying to cozy up to the donor class and try directing his initial campaign towards appeal with the donor class, uh, he broke a lot of opportunities to try to compete for the base. And so his campaign is again, it's it's been been, you know, it's it's up there with Scott Walker and Rick Perry in terms of the great disasters of Republican politics right now on a national level. I mean, as someone who I who thinks DeSantis would have been a very interesting president, you know, someone who who might be able to have actually done some some things at the national level that um, you know, could could have had a lasting impact. Um, it's unfortunate to see, but it's a product of his own creation. Um, but again, I, I don't see any other path out there for for a Vivek or you know, certainly not a again, thankfully for a Nikki Haley or Chris Christie or Tim Scott. You know, someone that would that would represent, in my opinion, a, a reversal back to kind of pre twenty sixteen norms. Um, so I think it's Trump or bust. Um, I, I think even if he, you know, even if they they sped up the justice process and he ended up actually in jail, and I think that should these things not be waved away as the result of an electoral uh, victory by 
Trump or Republicans, however you want to put it, um, where this can all kind of be, be you know, pardoned away, um, I, th- I think Trump will be convicted, right? The, the opportunity to cherry pick the jurisdictions with which you'd go in trial, you know, you put Trump on trial in D.C., he's going to be convicted for anything you put in front of them because D.C. hates Trump. It's a 95-5, you know, voting demographic there. Um, we do not have any sort of civil liberties for political prejudice. Um, I, I think he will be the candidate. I think he could be the candidate even behind bars in that regard, which would be very interesting. That was going to be my question. Is it possible that both happen? Yeah. Can he Can he win the primary and be in jail? Like, I don't really know the laws around that. Can you be convicted of something and still be running a political campaign? Right. You, you have all sorts of, of candidates historically. I mean, they're, they're usually, you know, gadfly minor candidates at the presidential level, but I mean, there's plenty of politicians in Louisiana and other parts of the state that have, have won office and re-election from, <laughs> from behind a, 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 a jail cell uh, with, with various charges. Maybe he goes from tweets to truth social to now it's like jailhouse notes he keeps yeah. sending out. Yeah, he'd be, he be, be uh, communicating with the public for, uh, the, the same way that uh, Ross Albrecht does. Um, but again, complaining about, uh, complaining about the breakfast that morning. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and, 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 and which, which, which again, I, I think would be a, be a very interesting, you know, that, that, you know I'm, I would sign up for that. I mean, I, I don't think Trump would like that, but I, I think that'd be a very interesting dynamic to actually see someone behind bars, a genuine en- enemy of the state um, running for office. And I think ultimately for Trump to have any chance because, because of his unpopularity, you know, we know what the campaigns, the, the entire strategy is going to be. It's the same strategy they ran in 2020. It's the same strategy they ran in 2022. It's the same way that they ran in 2018, um, which was successful for Democrats. Um, in most cases, all three terms, Republicans did win congressional seats down ballot, which kind of goes to the uniqueness and the, the curiosity of the 2020 election. Um, it, in making it a, a referendum on Trump himself. And again, Trump is an unpopular figure. I don't think Trump's approval ratings are going to massively change with independent voters and people that don't like him. Um, and so if the election is a referendum on Trump, I don't know how Trump wins that. If the referendum is on the system, if it's on the government, if it's on the regime, then I think that creates a very different dynamic. And that's where I find people like RFK Jr. and and some of these these non-traditional Republicans, Tulsi Gabbard, you know, is is in that mold as well um some of these figures that sound pretty much like trump when it comes to talking about you know the, the abuses of power the weaponization of dc um you know is is there a coalition that can be built there and I, again I, I would love to see you know for for entertainment standpoint and also from this us versus the regime dynamic i would love to see trump with a, a, a rf kennedy jr as the vp you know a tulsi gabbard on the vp i don't care what their bad views are on guns or the environment or some all these other issues. Ultimately, um, it's 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 the, the narrative has to be about the system itself being rigged. And I have a feeling you're not going to get Tim Scott or Nikki Haley uh, being a very effective uh, figurehead for that dynamic. Do you think were Trump to win the primary again? Do you think and and whatever somehow be able to continue and through the indictments and everything? Do you think he would? learn from what many would say the mistake of, uh, I mean, he won the election, so how much of a mistake can you call it? But the mistake of bringing in Mike Pence as his VP, uh, do you think he would actually do something? If you were talking about anybody besides Trump, I would say there's no way. But because it's Trump, who knows? Do you think he's crazy enough to do something that over the top and that like bring in a Tulsi Gabbard, bring in an RFK? Or are we, are we really just sort of fantasy fanficking here? I don't think it's unrealistic. I mean, I, I think that there'd be a lot of pressure against it. I think the RNC would hate it. I think a lot of the consultants that are leading the campaign would not like it, but Trump is still someone who talks to people like Steve Bannon, talks to people like Roger Stone, 
Um, these are people that have a far better sense of the pulse of American trends than most of the consultants, the professional class that Trump has around him. And you know, ultimately, if the goal is, well, how can we broaden the appeal? Um, you know, the calculation that, oh, well, the, 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 the answer to broadening the appeal is some sort of safe, boring, um, you know, focus group tested VP. You know, like, oh, well, Trump isn't performing well with wine moms in the Georgia suburbs, so therefore we need to have, you know, a, a friendly female face on the ticket. I don't think that's, that's good strategy. Uh, oh, well, you know, Trump wants to elevate his numbers with um, black voters, so therefore Tim Scott, you know, that's, that's the perfect, you know, token appointment there. I don't think that works. Um, you know, I, I, I think going for the extreme, and, and the beauty of it is that Trump is someone who cares first and foremost about aesthetics. Um, you know, Kennedy, the Kennedy name is as good a brand as you can have in politics. Historically, it, it appeals you know, right to that sort of nostalgia aspect that's always been part of, of Trump's appeal, right? Make America great. People still have, you know, pride over the Kennedy era, whether they should or should not. Um, and uh, I, I think that dynamic, you know, and then, and then of course, you, you had the beautiful, you know, element of, you know, the, the QAnon mythos of, you know, John F. Kennedy Jr. is going to rise from the dead and, and, you know, be Trump's white knight and, you know, possibly replace Pence on the ticket. You know, everything that kind of went down that rabbit hole, what better replacement he for runs JFK a telegram Jr. than RFK Jr.? Did you know that? Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> JFK Jr., he has a Telegram channel. Yeah. Subscribe to his newsletter. Um, no, that, but yeah, that's yeah. a real thing, but anyway. I mean, a real thing, but anyway, go on. But, but again, what, what better replacement than RFK Jr.? Right. So, so I, 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 I think it's better than 0% odds. You know, I'm not going to say that, you know, I'm not putting money on it currently. Um, but I think ultimately, if Trump is serious, if, if Trump is serious about making the state pay, if he's serious about the revenge tour, if he's serious about winning, um, to me, I think it's a necessary move. I don't think Trump wins with a, a Nikki Haley ticket. I don't think Trump wins by playing it safe. I think he has to take a major shot like that. And he needs to, you know, ultimately, he needs to capture that Joe Rogan, you know, that, that skeptical, you know, the entire system is rib, rib, rigged sort of voter, um, many of which can, you know, these, these are sort of people that... That, that found Trump amusing in 2016, but voted for Gary Johnson because they couldn't stand Trump, you know, ultimately at, at the end of the day, that's exactly the sort of person he needs to win over. And when, when you have, you know, Scott Horton out there saying, you know, I hate Trump, but the more the state, you know, the more the, de the Department of Justice goes after, after him, like they could convince me to vote for him. You know, that's, that, that's a tip off right there. That's, that's a sign. Um, because you, know, you, you combine Trump and Kennedy. Again, bad on all sorts of issues, but I think people that hate the regime could get on board with that ticket. All right, well, let's transition over to talking a little bit more about RFK, because to me, he's one of the more intriguing political figures outside of Donald Trump to emerge in the last you know, decade or two. Uh, and especially given his past, if we're talking about um, being against the regime, uh, just look at his family. I mean, his family, whatever you may think of them, uh, a lot, a I mean, on both sides of this thing too. I mean, his family has been taken out by the regime, JFK, RFK, some may say JFK Jr. Uh, on the other side, you have, you know, some, some seedier elements of that, of that side of the family that have certainly, you know, been in political power for you know, the better part of this century. So there's a couple of ways you could view his, his sort of political name and, and his political past. But in terms of 
what he says, especially when it comes uh, to the vaccine issue. That's the something he's been known for for a very long time, long before he was ever in a presidential conversation. And there seems to be this sort of perfect confluence of events where more people than ever are sort of in tune with the possible issues of vaccines, not just brought upon by the COVID vaccine, but he has entered that conversation at just the exact right time with just the exact right amount of credibility on the issue that I think a lot of people are really attaching themselves to him and his campaign for that reason, because it is an issue that is hitting home in ways um, like never before. On the other hand, just to bring Trump back in for a second, one thing I do find interesting about the Trump campaign is um, he does not at all back away or shy away from bragging about Operation Warp Speed, from bragging about getting the vaccine out there as fast as possible, which seems like a crazy thing to me to still be bragging about. Um, so I, I'm really confounded by that whole, the whole issue and how how that sort of warps into the conversation, uh, especially given tr Trump having to even, I, I've even seen him when he's brought up the vaccine or brought up Warp Speed, he'll even get boos from his own people in, in those moments at rallies. Uh, meanwhile, RFK is sort of the, the polar opposite on that stuff and has been the polar opposite on vaccine stuff for a very long time. So I, I'm just curious how you view RFK in terms of this presidential election. Uh, he's definitely the most interesting candidate, but does he have any chance to gain any traction? Is is he just destined to be at best sort of the next Bernie Sanders in, in the Democratic Party? I think for the Democratic Party, he, he won't even rise to the, the level of Bernie Sanders only because the, the Democratic Party is not even interested in having debates, you know, that they're not interested in pretending um, that there is a, a challenge there. And I, it'd be interesting to see how that changes should Biden be forced out, which I don't think is outside the realm of possibilities. Um, but I even think in that situation, they'll, they'll find a, a justification to keep RFK out of the debates. Um, because RFK Jr. is what Bernie Sanders claimed to be. He, he's a genuinely a political outsider. He's genuinely someone who is not of the party from the power structure you know, you saw you know, no matter all the ways the Democratic Party went about rigging the election against Bernie Sanders, he has been a loyal soldier to the end. He's had no problem endorsing all of the various power brokers that worked against him, all the people that you know, spat in the face of his supporters. I don't think RFK Jr. is going to be doing that. Um, and so, again, I, I, it, while his, you know, his, his trend, his polling trends are actually very similar to what Bernie Sanders had going into that 2016 election, he'll never have that uh, perception of legitimacy as a Democrat candidate that they afforded Bernie. Um, but his rise is, is fascinating. I mean, it's, it's, it's organic. Um, it's a product of going in front of people like Joe Rogan. And what I respect, you know, I, 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 I have not, you know, been a, a long, you know, RF Kennedy Jr. fan. I've, I've, I've known people that I respect that have been fans of his work on, on issues in the past. I've always appreciated his willingness to um, you know, call out the war machine, his skepticism of the CIA. He's got very good reasons for all of that. Um, but listening to him on Joe Rogan, anybody in the current political environment that can have a conversation for three hours without notes, just kind of riffing on um, points that they are passionate about, that's very rare in modern politics. Most politicians are very mediocre in this regard. Um, they don't have an original thought beyond what a staffer will prepare for them. Um, outside of whatever background they had, right? So if you, you talk to someone who was, you know, in the, the you know, manure business, you know, before they became a congressman, they'll talk to you about manure all day long. Um, but in terms of these broader sweeping sort of views on, you know, the, the reality of, you know, the corruption, this, this dynamic between the, the various industrial uh, uh, complexes the state has created not simply the military industrial complex, but the medical industrial complex, the farming industrial complex, all of the variety of this, this underlying corruption 
um, between big business and the big state. Um, you know, very few can talk confidently about that. He can. And so I, I left that convinced that, hey, look, like this, this is someone who could be a real asset to, you know, what a, an anti-regime ticket would need to look like. And it's, it's interesting to see, you know, the ways that, you know, I've got friends that are politically apathetic. You know, they'd much rather watch a UFC fight than a political debate um, for good reason. Um, you know, they, they find Joe Rogan, you know, his episode on Joe Rogan, interesting. Um, you know, I'm not here to, to say that every statement he's made is, is something that, that I agree with, you know, I've got he's buff. Are, so that yeah, helps. Yeah. That I mean, that, that helps. I mean, certainly he, he passes the physiognomy check, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm not here to endorse every view that he has, but in terms of calling out and, and questioning, um, the underlying rotten corruption of this entire apparatus, um, he seems to be as, as strong a figure out there as anyone, um, going to that core issue. Yeah, well, I guess that does speak to the larger question here because there's not really going to if if things play out as they've been stated to. I believe Biden has already said he's he's planning to, to to run again and become president again and all of this. So under traditional standards, uh, the, the traditional way these things would play out, there would be no opposition to a sitting president. Uh, the fact that there's even someone who's become as popular as RFK within the party in and of itself is is kind of unique. Without you know a sort of a formal DNC backed. All right, we're going to have a primary now. Uh, so outside of that, because we, we know that if, if Biden stays, it's pretty much just going to be Biden. There's not going to be a room for a debate. There's not going to be a conversation. But there has been seemingly a shift in both in Congress and in some of the media coverage of Hunter Biden, of the Biden family corruption. Do you think there has been an internal pivot within whatever we may call the regime to move on from Joe Biden, in which case we might actually see some kind of battle for the Democratic nomination? I think there has been. And I think you can date it back and this might be overly simplistic, but politics often works a lot more simple, uh, more more simple than uh, uh, than than we would like to believe at times. Um, it's when Valerie Jarrett left the Biden administration, and after that, you started getting all sorts of unflattering news headlines. You know, you had the reveal kind of almost immediately afterwards about Biden having his own classified information that he shouldn't have had. You know, parked in his garage. You had um, you know whistleblowers coming out about. Uh, the the business that he was doing with his son with foreign op with, with various foreign entities um, that's an issue that you know the Biden administration can try to to you know pretend is a non-issue all they want I mean it, it looks pretty damning um, it, it, it seems pretty clear this was an influencing influence peddling information uh, operation um, the extent to which the Biden family not just Hunter but you know various you know grandchildren of of the big guy and the like um, were profiting from these deals. Um, you know, this, this seems to be, you know, pretty cut and dry. I mean, one of the, the biggest forms of vulgar corruption unveiled to the public, I'm not going to say it's the biggest one ever, even in recent history, but the one, the, the easiest one to see on display, um, you know, you even have headlines that are, you know, relatively petty and small scale about how Joe Biden's mean to staffers, um, when they talk to him one-on-one, -on -one, kind of going against the grandpa Joe, golly gosh darn sort of dynamic. And the reality is, is that the Obama team never liked Joe Biden. They, they, they saw him as a constant headache. They discouraged him from running in 20, uh, 2020. Um, and Obama world controls a large segment of the Democrat Party. So, you know, would it surprise me at all if you have that sort of Chicago-backed, you know, Democrat mob with Obama, you know, being the shadow president you know, from his estate in uh, D.C. and sometimes Martha's Vineyard. Um, you know, he, he has said in the past, right, you know, sometimes I think about, you know, what, you know, how great it would be if I could simply, you know, be kicked back in my office in my sweatpants and had a, had a microphone, you know, plugged into the ear 
of the figurehead president and tell them what to do because I really like this work. Um, his own words. Um, you know, is there someone that they're considering as a challenge should Biden be taken down by his own incompetency and grift? I mean, worth pointing out, I mean, Joe Biden's never been a smart man. This has always been a fool, someone who got to where he was by lying about his record. Um, he's not, either. there's nothing smart about Joe Biden. Um, he could be easily taken down if someone wants to put the pressure on him. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm not ruling out that possibility. Now, I don't know who that figure would be. Maybe Michelle Obama. Um, that would seem to be the, the easiest to kind of kickstart something on. You have the Obama nostalgia, you have the name brand, you've got the, you know, made for Oprah TV uh, PR campaign around her. Um, you know, so that's and Obama back in the White House. Yeah, that, I, mean, I mean, that, you know, I, I could see that being compelling. Um, the other side, of course, is that someone who clearly thinks that Biden is not going to end up being the nominee is Gavin Newsom. And Gavin Newsom represents Hillary world. Um, Gavin Newsom and Obama do not get along. Um, it stems back to Obama during his 20, 2004 campaign refusing to get photographed with Gavin Newsom um, because he didn't want the perception, he didn't want the baggage that came with getting photographed with the first mayor that legalized gay marriage, um, as Gavin wow. Newsom did when he was mayor of, Chicago, uh, mayor of San Francisco. How and far so that we've whole come. dynamic. Wow. Yeah, and, and, and funny how things change, mm -hmm. you know, uh, but... Um, but Gavin Newsom took that personally. So he was a big Hillary backer because, because, because Gavin Newsom was doing fundraisers for Obama at the same time. It's like, so you'll take my money, but you won't get photographed with me. Well, you know, F you. And so that dynamic. Yeah, we can't forget as, as much as, you know, the regime has power players and whatnot. At the end of the day, these people are still actually humans, maybe to, to some extent. And to the extent that they are humans anyway, they're real humans that get really pissed off at each other, just like real humans do. Yes, at the, at the very least, they are fallen. And, um, yeah, so, and, 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 and so I, I think that, you know, that the, the, the inner divide between Obama world and Hillary world, I think that dynamic still exists. Um, and, you know, if, should you actually get, you know, should, should Biden fall and you actually have to have, and you actually see a divided Democrat party have to fight out who is going to be the successor there. And, you know, the opportunity to run against Trump is going to be seen as a golden one from their side. Um, that creates, I think, a, the, the possibility for a whole lot of entertainment value. Now we are, you know, we're, we're, in, we're in August now, um, you know, the time frame for this, you know, you, you'd think it need to happen sooner rather than later. Um, we shall see, but I'm not completely ruling that as a, out as a possibility. And if that happens, I think that would be a, it'd be wonderful, um, to, to see all this play out and, and people kind of really see just how, um, how petty and vindictive, um, these get a reminder of that, that taste um, going into election season. What, what did you, what would you see a potential Biden fall actually looking like? Would you see it as something where maybe the, the scandals and the, the pressure and the corruption, it all just gets too much that he just comes out and says, you know, something generic, like for the sake of my family or something, I've decided not to run, run for reelection. Or do you think he could actually be taken down? I mean, do you think that we could actually see what they try to do to Trump happen to Biden? Could Biden actually, you know, get, get impeached? I don't think he'll be prosecuted or anything like that. You know, the way that it typically works for politicians, right, is, you know, of, of a certain st stature is, you know, you, 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 you're, you're explained, you know, if you don't do this, then we're going to take you down and they take the easy route out, right? Um, so I don't expect to see, like, the indictment of Joe Biden unless Trump comes in. He's, he's actually serious this time about lock him up, right, which well, I'll, I'll believe it when I see it. Um, so I think short of uh, a, a, a political... Uh, vilification campaign if the Republican Party retakes power. I don't think that's going to be on the table. I, th I think, I mean, because the beauty of it is that 
you know, for all of these issues and weaknesses that Biden has, we also have to deal with the fact that, you know, this, he's, this is a man in clear mental decline, someone who is, you know, one fall away from being completely taken out. Um, and so I, I think being able to rely upon some combination of family concerns and health, um, you know, that creates a very easy, clean way of getting out of the way. Again, there's plenty of people. I mean, again, when you, when you, have, when you have MSNBC pundits that even, you know, talk at times about his decline, it makes all of this very easy. Um, and so should that happen, should the scenario play out, I think that, you know, it, it would be with that as a justification and then come the wolves. Well, I, I'm curious then, let's just say if somehow what they're trying to do with Trump actually works and even if they indict him, or somehow it removes him from the conversation. Who do you see? Do you think that changes this entire uh, campaign in, in regards to someone like a DeSantis who maybe in any other time would have been one of the front runners, but Trump has just sucked the air out of the whole thing. So how do you think it changes the dynamic on that side if at some point Trump actually does remove get removed from this conversation? Should Trump somehow be removed from the equation tomorrow? Um, I think you would see DeSantis surge. Um, you know, I, I talking to again average Republican voters that I know personally, most of them are still DeSantis people. You know, they prefer Trump because they have a sense of loyalty from Trump. They thought he was a great president for four years. You know, it's kind of you know, basically the question of like, well, why wouldn't I go with someone who I know is going to deliver? Um, they're very happy with the way DeSantis has been as governor. Some of them don't want to lose him as governor. And so I think you know, we both why, might be in, in that category. Yeah, I so, mean. so so why why would I, you know, why would I open up that can of worms when I could just have Trump? And like and again, most of them would, would, would you know wanted DeSantis to wait until 2028, would vote for DeSantis in 2028 if he was a candidate. And so I, I think that if you're on Twitter, all you see is this this ridiculous bickering between you know loud Trump people and loud DeSantis people that just try to tear each other down. I don't think you know, Twitter is not real life or X or whatever it is right now is not real life. I think the majority of Republican voters that are Trump people would have DeSantis as their number two candidate. Um, you know, I could, I could perhaps see a pathway for Vivek to be interesting in that perspective. I've been very impressed with the extent to which his message has you know, resonated with a certain type of person. Um, thankfully, I don't think even with Trump off the field, off the, off the board, you know, I don't think that creates an opening for a, a reset. I don't think it's going to, you know, Tim Scott and Nikki Haley, they would probably poll better than they are right now, but I don't think that they would be particularly viable. I don't think either of them would win San, uh, even South Carolina um, in that dynamic. And so I think that, yeah, that it, I, you know, I would put, feel comfortable betting on DeSantis should he show the, the just the remnant of a, a credible campaign at that point. He certainly could, his campaign could figure out ways to, to undermine that. Um, but I think with Trump out of the way, I think DeSantis would be be strong in that perspective. But again, I'm not unless uh, unless he he is uh, has a health event or something like that. I don't expect anything legally or anything else to take him off the equation. Do you think that's the only real reason we even see a Ron DeSantis running right now, or a Vivek, or any of these guys? I mean, I, I got to think that these guys can't actually look at the situation and think they can actually beat Trump in terms of the, the actual votes in an actual primary. Uh, so I have to think the only motivation for them to, well, other than the fact that, you know, people run for president all the time to sell books or whatever else it might be, but the only political motivation in the short term, I would think would be if he does really get taken out by whatever, whatever it may be, legal troubles or what have you, that then one of them can, would be someone that, that, that vote has to go somewhere. I think DeSantis entered the race thinking that he could beat Trump. And ultimately I think DeSantis really didn't have a choice 
after the midterms in 2022 for two reasons. One is, again, Trump candidates did very poorly. Um, you know, there was a, a desire for an alternative from a pragmatic point of view. Um, and if you saw, if, if you saw Trump was vulnerable, which again, I think that was a reason that that was an outlandish calculation at the time, you know, why not you be the guy? I think there is always a concern about waiting too long. You know, we can talk about Chris Christie you know, passing on 2012, um, where he would have been a probably very strong in a primary, which, you know, probably thankfully he passed on that, but you know, that, that was a lesson that a lot of people took in. And also when you had Trump, you know, calling him out before the midterms, right. You know, you know, knocking him as desanctimonious before, you know, he was even reelected. Um, that added in a whole different personal dynamic. And, you know, I don't think DeSantis is someone who takes slights lightly. Um, you know, you know, it, it takes a certain amount of ego to be a king. And that's the way that DeSantis has been in Florida. Um, so I think Trump created a situation where DeSantis couldn't not run at that regard, at that point. And I think DeSantis entered that race thinking he could win. Um, in terms of Vivek, I think a lot of the other candidates are using it for their own um, motivations. Um, I, I think Vivek's trying to build up a profile. I think he's trying to be a potential VP candidate or at the very least a cabinet position member. Um, and I, 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 I think Vivek's interesting. You know, I, 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 you know, I think it's fair to question some of his insincerity on sort of things. I think there's definitely, if you look at his record, some of his views that he talks about now are different than what he held not that long ago. Fine, whatever, that's politics. I think Vivek's a smart guy. I think he understands um, some of the real big issues out there. I mean, he's out there campaigning against abolishing the FBI. That's better than everyone else in the race. Um, but I think he's doing it purely just to, to boost his name recognition nationally and it's succeeding. Um, I think Nikki Haley, you know, what else are you going to do? You know, this is her only path to, to relevance. You know, I, I could expect her running for Lindsey Graham's Senate seat whenever he um, decides to, to call it in. And, you know, what are you going to do in the meantime? Well, running for president's not a bad idea. Um, you know, Chris Christie's got nothing else to do. So I think for the most part, everyone else, you know, it's just from a lack of other options to stay relevant. I think those two had very uh, concrete sort of reasons. And now at this point, I mean, for one, it'd be embarrassing to kind of close up shop right now. Um, you know, I, I think DeSantis thinks that he can win Iowa. And then if he wins Iowa, you know, how does, you know, how does that, that play out afterwards? I mean, it didn't work for Ted Cruz, but who knows? Um, I'm sure that there are people within DeSantis camp that it still have them convinced that there's a path of victory there. I don't see it, but you know, I'm, I'm not being paid to see it. Um, so I, I think that dynamic is out there, but you know, barring anything crazy happening with Trump, it seems that uh, the, the base has already spoken. All right, though. Well, one more question for you, and then we're going to hop into the smoke-filled room. Get a little weird, all right? Uh, as of the re the time of recording this podcast, it is August 10th, 2023. So a year from now, it should be anyway. Uh, it should be pretty locked in who our Republican and presidential candidates are. So who do you think, one year from today, if you have to put all your money on it, who are we seeing as the matchup? Well, if I was getting even odds across the board, I'd go with the boring pick of Trump and Biden. Um, if I, if I got a little, you know, a, a little extra juice on it, you know, I, 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 you know, I think, I think Trump Obama is, uh, is a lot more realistic than a lot of people think. And so to, to keep it interesting, I'm going to say that's, it's Trump Obama oh, in man. 2024, which would be very interesting in its own right. Um, a guy, I'm, I'm just looking forward to, to Trump referring to his opponent as big Mike 
um, <laughs> either on truth or the debate. Preferably the debate. That's what I want. That's the moment I want. want. For that reason alone, I fully support. I fully support this prediction and hope that it comes comes to fruition. That that's one that I hadn't really thought of, and it. it when you say it that way, it does really make sense. If, if in fact, they did pivot away from Biden, if that unconventional thing were to occur, I mean, she almost seems like a shoo-in if you really just look at the the aesthetics and and how easy it would be for her to ascend to the top if they decided to put her there. Yeah, no, I, it's the, the, the machine is in place. Again, you know, they, they've got an entity that could be jump-started at any moment. Um, I'm kind of surprised it didn't happen. I, I, I thought this was a possibility in 2020. Um, but I, I think Biden has underperformed even the lowest of expectations, um, at least in terms of perception-wise. I mean, unfortunately, he's been you know a lot more effective um, than people want to give him credit for in terms of. I mean, I, I always was. I, I kind of got to the point where, like, who the who the president is really doesn't matter because things are always going to be bad. But like, no, things things are significantly worse. So like, yeah, it it, it actually does matter. Um, just again because of all those appointed positions and, and everything down down the ballot there. Um, but uh, but yeah, I, I think Obama is a continuing embarrassment um, to to but but not only the two to kind of the the in terms of domestic politics, but I think even international politics in ways that um, Obama is probably not comfortable with. And so again, wouldn't wouldn't be surprising at all to see uh, the the Obama machine uh, stab him. Yeah, that's that's your friends in DC are the ones that stab you from the front, and I, I think that could very well happen. Well, Tho, thank you so much for coming on and well, uh, breaking down this. Uh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, no but I, I've got something up for, for, to share with your listeners that I, I think they'll, if, 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 uh, if anyone out there is in the Nashville area, um, we've got an event in September on the 23rd, the Mises Institute is putting on. It's uh, about the empire of lies with some great speakers, including uh, Ted Carpenter, who got fired from Cato for being anti-war. Uh, Michael Rechtenwald, who's got a lot of great works on the Great Reset. Uh, Karen Kwiatkowski, uh, who was a... Uh, 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 worked with the Pentagon and saw the war machine for what it is. And then uh, Jonathan Newman, who's one of our economists there. And so if any of your listeners are interested um, in attending this event in Nashville, uh, reach out to me. I've got, I'll give them a, a good, good deal on registration. So I had to get that, that pitch out there uh, for the day job. Well, I, I might reach out to you because I've never been to Nashville and we've been talking about going and I, I think I'm free that weekend. So I'll have to, I'll have to think about it. All right. Well, Tho, thank you so much. Also, before I let you go, be sure to just let everybody know how else they can reach out to you, all your other projects you got going on. Yeah, so um, you can find me on Twitter at Tho Bishop. There's not a lot of Thos out there. And um, one of the projects we got is we, we have a lot of, um, we've been, been doing animated video series. And um, so you can find those at Mises.org slash begin. We've got one going on right now about uh, the climate debate and, uh, and energy policy and that sort of stuff and kind of calling that out for what it is. And we also have one that uh, our, our most recent, our, our prior one was on foreign policy, America from Republic to Empire, um, which I think turned out pretty well. And so you can find those at Mises.org slash begin. So, Bishop, thanks so much for coming on my show. I'll see you in the smoke-filled room. All right, friends, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Tho Bishop, and this one continued in a very, very fun smoke-filled room. Uh, if you've followed Tho for a long time, you, you're very familiar with hearing his, his thoughts on politics, on uh, libertarian ideas, applying them to our political uh, system and whatnot. What you probably haven't heard him talk about are his thoughts on reptilians, are his thoughts on cryptids and Bigfoot, and his thoughts on UFOs and aliens and all of that fun stuff. Well, you're going to hear all of that, and you're going to find out by the end of the smoke-filled room if Tho Bishop has been Ikey-pilled. <laughs> so stay tuned for that, or go tune into that, I should say, or maybe you're already tuned into that. If you are a premium subscriber to The Mark Claire Show, you can subscribe in so many ways. Patreon.com slash Mark Claire Show. You can subscribe on Subscribestar. You can subscribe by now. Actually, I should say, uh, there is an integration 
between Spotify and uh, Patreon. So you should be able to log into your Patreon account through Spotify and actually listen and access your Mark Claire Show premium feed through Spotify. I'm also working on a similar setup with Apple. So I'm trying to find as many ways as possible uh, to allow you guys to access uh, both the premium and free content. I just put it as many places as I can find and I, I let you choose. You know, whatever you guys think is the best way I'm, I support. I, I'm a fan of Rockfin myself. I support Rockfin uh, because I, I follow a couple creators on there and once I follow one creator and I realize, well, shit, I got Isaac Wise up there. I got Jay Dyer there. I got all these Courtney Turner there. Uh, everybody I like is on Rockfin. So for me, Rockfin's a great deal uh, if you follow any, any of these creators. So I, I totally recommend checking that out. Uh, support me however you want, even if it's just by sharing the show, telling a friend about it. Either way, I'm glad to have you here each and every Monday. Until next week, my friends, in case I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. <laughs>